Good morning. I was here back a few weeks ago. Uh, if you knew at the church, um, Matthias Community Church is uh, in a transition to new pastoral leadership, so different people are filling in. So I was here, and the weather was a little bit different. Very hot. It's one of those Sundays that the pastor wishes that he would have preached on hell. It could have, you know, could have kind of worked really good. Uh, Karen, uh, I met the Galanas. We know them. Uh, I was just back in Wisconsin to the Village Missions Conference, uh, and the Galanas were there. They were in my prayer group. And I, he, in real life, he is one cool dude. You can, you can just see by his picture. Um, and... Uh, Oh, Ron and Marilyn Salee were there, uh, and their daughter, Rhonda, who is now, some of you remember probably Rhonda, you know, she's on the board of Village Missions. What has the world come to? I mean, that's an, that's an awesome thing. And, uh, uh, of course, Randy and Lisa, they roomed right next to me, and I, my flight got delayed uh, by six hours, and I got in really late, and... Um, I think it was Randy and Lisa that they made the bed in my room. So when you talk to Randy, you say, oh, Randy, that's so sweet. Which, you know, you know that big guy. And so uh, good chance to, to see all of our friends there in Wisconsin and that whole upper Midwest area of village missionaries. So it's good to be back with you. I'm here this Sunday, obviously. Um, and uh, we'll be back September 18th, which will be, I want to kind of continue uh, the same text I'm going to uh, teach on today. So let's open with prayer before we study God's word. Father God, thank you again for this opportunity to be at this wonderful church, this uh, such a warm uh, church family. I'm just feel honored to be here, my wife Joyce and I, to worship here, uh, just beautiful songs we sung, real great messages today already. Um, Lord, good fellowship, sounds like, throughout this whole weekend with uh, the, just enjoying each other's company through the baseball and, and the breakfast for the men. Just sounds like a neat weekend together and potluck later for the church family here. And uh, Lord, I just pray for your word now to, to be the bread that we, uh, we feed upon each day. Everything that comes from your word is, is for our building up and our strengthening from Genesis to Revelation. For this, we're so grateful in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today, I want to talk to you about the sovereignty of God. Wow. You, know, you say sovereignty of God. You've got to say it that way, I guess. Sovereignty of God. Um, there are certain essential doctrines of the Christian faith. Of course, the inspiration of Scripture, the deity of Christ, uh, the bodily resurrection of Christ. Back up a little bit. His atonement, that uh, he alone is our hope, his death on the cross, he's our Savior. I want to add a vitally important doctrine to that list, and that is the sovereignty of God. Everything today changes when we understand the sovereignty of God. Because aren't we living in a world right now that is, feels like it's spinning out of control? Do I just feel that way because I'm paranoid? Or are there other paranoid people here? Uh, you know, it just feels like it. In fact, I, I recently um, 
looked at news stories, and I just made a list. By the way, you can open your Bibles or get on your phone for uh, 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 Daniel chapter 4. We're going to be in the Old Testament book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 4, this week and again on the 18th of September. But here is a list of recent news stories that we get bombarded with every day. Of course, the ongoing war in Ukraine, the tension with China, Drought, flooding, climate change, racism, increased crime, monkeypox, inflation, and the upcoming recession. A lot of uncertainty and a lot of stress in our world. Now you add to national and global stresses our own personal stresses. And so I went ahead and made a list of what uh, we kind of, you layer on top. We might be concerned about inflation where our, our, you know, food prices and our money isn't being stretched as far. And you have a couple other stresses. Maybe we're concerned about the tension with China. And you add personal stresses like this list. Going through a tough patch in our marriage. So we're going through some marriage friction. Or, or uh, loneliness if we're single. We're under financial pressure or a a child that's rebelling, a broken relationship or a betrayal by a friend or maybe even uh, stress on our jobs. So you begin to layer this and we need some place to go and some truth to believe in that will bring things back into balance, don't we? Where we're tilted. Remember when you played... Uh, the uh, what are those things? Those machines, uh, uh, pinball machines, and you know you're you're giving that kick. You know maybe you didn't do it, but I was a cheater as a kid. And if you got it going, the ball going, the the sign would say tilt, tilt. We need something to get us back right. And I believe it's the doctrine, the teaching of the sovereignty of God. Now I know that word sovereignty is kind of a unusual word. Let me give you a definition of God's sovereignty. Here it is. As the ultimate authority, God rules over all things, rules over all things in such a way that, number one, he is the source and maintainer of everything. The source, the creator, and maintains. Everything's held together by the word of his power. And number two, he, God, directly or indirectly controls all events and all people to fulfill his purposes. Now, I want to emphasize that second part of this. God directly or indirectly controls all events and all people to fulfill his purposes. Now, we're going to see God's sovereignty on display in a man named Nebuchadnezzar, King Nebuchadnezzar, in his life in, in Daniel chapter 4. Now we want to go back here, understand the times. This is the 6th century before Christ. The ruling empire are the Babylonians. And the ruler of this vast empire is King Nebuchadnezzar. In those days, this was not a democracy. He is the top dude, Nebuchadnezzar, of the whole world. 
Do you remember that several years ago uh, commercial about these uh, really good headphones? And uh, uh, it had to do with Seattle. Uh, back then, Colin Kaepernick was the quarterback of San Francisco. And the, the, the commercial is he's coming to, uh, through the streets of Seattle, everybody's screaming, he's got his headphones on, and it's that song, you know, uh, I'm the man, I'm the man, I'm the man. I'm not quite the singer, whoever that guy was. Uh, but that's King Nebuchadnezzar. He's the man, he's the man, he's the man. And, and, and he's got this power perhaps like no other dictator has ever had. And, and here he is on top of the world. Everything is, is, is his. And he knows it. He knows he's the man. But something is about to happen that is going to bring him down so low and is going to bring him to a place of the acknowledgement of God's direct or indirect control of all of the events and all people to fill to fulfill his purposes. What is going to happen to him is for seven years, he's going to become like a beast of the field. He's going to be out. I don't know if they kind of walled off a little part for him because, you know, it would be so shameful for the world's dictator to, to be uh, so mentally ill. Uh, so he had, I don't know, it was the Nebuchadnezzar Park. I don't know what it was, but he, he, he's, he's acting and, and he's believing he's an animal. You know, recently I, uh, I stumbled upon an article. It was entitled Real Life Werewolves. You ever come upon an article like that? You just got to read it. Yeah. I don't care if you're, you know, at work or you're busy. You got to read Real Life Werewolves. It said there have been 13 cases since 1850 of people who were convinced they were wolves. 13 cases. It's, it's rare. Um, and, and some of these symptoms that they kind of track, psychiatrists, lasted anywhere from one hour, someone being convinced they're a wolf, to decades. Can you imagine that? And, and the psychiatrist, the article went on to say the psychiatrist brought in this one guy who was convinced he had been transformed into a wolf. And they, they put him in front of a mirror and they said, describe yourself. He said, well, can't you see? He said, my, my whole head is is just got all this hair on it, which I totally envy that. But uh, anyway, this, this hair, and look, my mouth protrudes out. My teeth, they're all sharp fangs. And of course, the psychiatrist, you know, he's just a normal-looking guy. I think this could be what happened, that God allowed this to happen to Nebuchadnezzar for him to see God's sovereignty, his direct or indirect control over all events, all people to fill his own purposes. Now, in every crisis, that could be personal, communal, national, or global, we can gain a right perspective in the midst of that through understanding two key truths. We're going to see this here in this passage that relate to God's sovereignty. The first truth is God's sovereignty and our frailty. I want to talk about that most of the, the time we have here. And then I want to finish with God's sovereignty and our source of strength. So God's sovereignty and our frailty, and then God's sovereignty and our source of strength. Let's kind of get started here. Uh, just I want to paraphrase the first few verses and then take a look at verse 23. God's sovereignty and our frailty. So again, what happened here is uh, uh, King Nebuchadnezzar is a very arrogant man. And he has this dream. He's had a couple of different dreams in this, 
in this uh, prophetical book. But in this particular dream, I'll just kind of bring it down short. You can kind of be reading along there as I just kind of give you a paraphrase. But basically, he sees in this dream this huge tree that is beautiful and bears fruit year-round, and it can be seen throughout the whole world, and it is chopped down to a stump, but the roots remain. And then the dream kind of moves over to uh, his, this, this stump becoming like a beast of the field. He calls in Daniel, who by God's ability is able to interpret dreams. And he says, Daniel, what happened in this dream? I'm alarmed. I'm disturbed. It's troubling to me. And Daniel says, I got really bad news for you, king. The, the tree is you. It's you. You're, you're, you're seen throughout the whole earth. You're the man, you're the man, you're the man, but you're going to be cut down. And he said, for seven times, that would be seven years, you're going to be like the beast of the field until you acknowledge God is the most high. Frailty. Now, pick up now in verse 28. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar which is really interesting, the timing. Check this out, verse 29. At the end of 12 months, we're going to see this is when it all comes crashing down. Interesting from the dream, the interpretation of the dream, 12 months passed before the fulfillment of the dream. And I'm wondering, is that 12 months of God's grace? And isn't that the way God is? He's so patient. He lets things kind of go and go and go a little further. He's, he, he, he wants us to willingly to turn from our sin. In the case of King Nebuchadnezzar, he doesn't. He even becomes more arrogant. Notice he was walking on the roof of the palace. Now, back in the days, ancient days, and even the days of Jesus, uh, roofs were flat. So don't picture him, you know, going up a pitch, you know, trying to climb up a roof. He's, he's on this, this roof. A lot of times they would sleep up there when it was really hot. You'd get a breeze. So he's on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. Verse 30, and the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? Interesting, he says, I built this great city. A lot of times we view ourselves more awesome than we really are. Actually, Herodotus, which was, he was a Greek um, historian in the 5th century. He actually traveled to Babylon, and he said that Babylon was built by Semiramis. It was not built by Nebuchadnezzar. But he says, hey, didn't I build this? It is true, however, that, that Nebuchadnezzar, under his rule, the city was really beautified, the gardens and all of that, the seventh wonder of the world, all of that stuff. It was beautified. But Herodotus said the designer and the overseer of that beautification project was Nebuchadnezzar's wife. That's a hundred years after all of this Herodotus wrote. And so not quite true, and that can happen where we think we're greater than we really are, verse 31, while the words were still on the king's mouth. Right when he finishes it, or just you know, kind of wrapping up his great arrogant speech, there fell a voice from heaven, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox." And seven periods of time, that's seven years, shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and it gives it to whom he will, until you understand the sovereignty of God. Verse 33, immediately 
You know, that time of grace had ended. Here comes the discipline. Immediately, the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers. You know, he was, became kind of a long-haired, freaky people type guy. And his nails were like bird's claws. I remember once I, Joyce and I took our two daughters to Branson Ripley's Believe It or Not Museum, and they had pictures of this guy with the longest fingernails. And I kind of I picture Nebuchadnezzar. It, it's, it's not a pretty sight. But here he is. He's unkempt. He's, he's fallen deep, deep into mental illness. It is easy to really, it really is easy to forget how frail we actually are, isn't it? Nebuchadnezzar lost sight of the fact that he was created by God. Yes, he was uh, the dictator, but it was given to him by God alone. So I think so often, when we're talking about the sovereignty of God and his rule, we, 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 we kind of get caught up in our, in our own awesomeness. We forget we're frail. Several months ago, uh, my, my uh, grandson, Cole, he's seven, he and I went for a walk along. There's a dike where I live out on Camino Island. There's a dike between Camino Island and Stanwood. And it's paved, and, and they have, a, they have a, a walk where you can park and, and go down to the end and back. So, so we did that walk together. And my, my little grandson, he, just, he loves to run. He Grandpa, let's race back. <laughs> on your mark. Yeah, let's do this. On your mark. Get set. Go, and he just starts taking off. And I kind of figured, you know, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let him get ahead for a while, and he'll feel good about himself. But somewhere down the line as we get closer to, to our car, uh, I'm, I'm going to pour on the afterburners and, and, and kind of show him who's boss in the end, okay? So I'm thinking, now's the time to pour on the afterburners. There were no afters to burn. <laughs> and I'm realizing I am at top speed, and I begin to realize, when did I become so old and frail? I actually, if I, if I wasn't such a spiritual pastor, I, I had the temptation. Satan came along and said, hey, you could stop and tell your grandson, oh, I just pulled my hammy. But, you know, I, I'm trying to be an honest guy. Now, he just wipes me out in a recognition. You know, I've forgotten how frail I am. And that's us. We need to acknowledge. And by the way, not only acknowledge our frailty, but there's great freedom. Believe it or not, there is great freedom in acknowledging our frailty. Did you know that? It's kind of like when Joyce and I drove over here. We went over the, um, the trestle bridge there from, from the Everett area over and up the hill to come to Machias. There's a need to cross over this bridge from a belief that we're awesome over this bridge to a belief that only God is awesome. He alone controls all events and all people, and I am but his frail instrument to be used by him. It's a bridge we must all cross. A lot of times we don't want to cross that bridge. We like it in Everett. I, I, I can't understand why, but we like it over there. And when we look over the bridge and we say to, to acknowledge that I'm a mess, I, that, that doesn't look very attractive, but I want to tell you, crossing over the bridge is the best thing we'll ever do. Let me give you some, some characteristics or some marks when we cross over to that new land of the awareness of our frailty and our need of Jesus Christ every day. We move from self-satisfaction to satisfaction in Christ alone. 
from denying our frailty to accepting it. From blaming others to accepting personal responsibility. From anxiety to peace. This is a biggie. Because if we are convinced we are awesome, then we must control all events and people around us. We feel like it's on our shoulders, and that creates incredible anxiety because there's so much uncertainty and so many things that are actually out of our control. And to cross over to say, okay, I'm throwing in the towel, God. I I can't control anything, and the peace of Christ begins to flood our hearts. We move from, from over that bridge from restlessness to rest in God. From striving in the flesh to abiding in Christ. From self-pity to praise. From bouts of anger to more even-tempered as we watch and understand how God controls. When we have a blocked goal, you see, anger, a lot of, 99% of anger is caused by blocked goals. Somebody or someone is standing in the way of what we want to accomplish. And when we say, God, you alone are in control, we begin to learn to accept block goals, knowing that God is holding it back because he has other purposes. We move from self-inspired confidence to God-inspired confidence. As what we will see in King Nebuchadnezzar, he moves from, I'm the man, to you're the God. Now, God's sovereign hand often has to break us to come to this healthy awareness of our frailty. We don't often come to it by ourselves, come to that awareness. And there are two main ways. First one is is King Nebuchadnezzar's problem here, and that is brokenness in our sin. God breaks us in the midst of our sin. And secondly, brokenness in the midst of our innocence. Brokenness in our sin, like Nebuchadnezzar from from his arrogance to being humbled. You see this in King David. Remember when he had an adulterous deal going with Bathsheba and she gets pregnant, he covers up the whole deal by having her husband Uriah killed in battle. And in Psalm 51, you see a complete brokenness. It's a brokenness in his sin or because of his sin. But there's also a brokenness in our innocence. Do you remember, if you've ever read the story of Elijah up on Mount Carmel, he wins this great victory over the prophets of Baal. He runs along the chariot of Ahab the king, and he's just, everything's going his way, and and he's trusting God. His faith is in God alone. And then Ahab's wife Jezebel says, I'm going to kill you. And he flees and just has a complete breakdown. He just, he's exhausted. He's way south now um, in, in an isolated place. Here's an innocent man that broke. And, you, and if you read the text and, and what follows is, he, he now begins to bring along Elisha, who has just a double portion of his spirit. You see kind of him pouring into Elisha, and the best is yet to come through him. Brokenness in our innocence. You know, in Psalm, or excuse me, John 15, such a, a passage that, of the words of Jesus that has once in my life and has continued to be uh, just so powerful in my life. You see, when I came to Camino Chapel back in 1997, um, I thought I was the man, the man, the man. I'm embarrassed to say this now. I thought I was. In 2001, I found out I wasn't. I had a complete emotional breakdown. Couldn't work for six months. Church paid my salary. 
Joyce and I, we went down to California, stayed at my parents' house. They spend the winters in, uh, used to, they, they're with the Lord now, but they spent the winters at those times uh, in Arizona, so their house was free in Northern California. And I went down there, um, hard to get, even get out of bed, hard to string any thoughts together. I remember the only thing that brought me peace, don't ask me why, smooth jazz. I don't even like it, but during that time, I had to keep the lights off, everything quiet, play very quietly, instrumental, smooth jazz. I came crashing down. It was embarrassing. I felt like a failure. But then God began to restore, and he brought me back to Camino Chapel in the spring of uh, 2002. I remember my first sermon. I remember just shaking. I I just thought, oh, everybody's looking at me as a failure. Um, Best thing, well, (laughs) there are three best things that have happened in my life. At 17, trusting Jesus Christ as my Savior. Somehow talking Joyce into marrying me. We got married in 1979. And three was my emotional breakdown. You say, how can that be? I'm telling you. Would I ever want to go through it again? No. There was a point there I told Joyce, Joyce, I think I'm going to become one of those homeless guys pushing a Safeway, you know, cart down at downtown Seattle. I saw no hope in the end. I begged our district representative at that time, Vern Wilkson. There was a church with eight people in Montana. I said, I begged him, can you get me out of here and send me to that little eight-person church? And I told him, I says, I think on a good day I could pastor eight people. That's how low I was. He said something really wise. He said, get better, and, and then we'll decide. And I got better, and I came back to Camino Chapel. was there for, what, 20-some years But after that, things began to change. A deeper life with Christ. And I want to tell you, um, opportunities to serve him like I never before. All of a sudden, after many times after services, someone would come up battling with depression. And would come for prayer and, and counsel and encouragement. Never before. You know, this, this, this time period, I... I, I Here's what I did at first. I tried to figure out what sins I had done that God was punishing me for in this emotional messed up state. We were up at Birch Bay. I remember I'd go for a walk. Uh, uh, this is early on in this depression. I'd go for this, my, these walks down the bay there, and I'd just say, Lord, tell me what I've done wrong. And I tried to make lists. I, you know, I, yeah, I'm a sinner. I, I'm not perfect, thankfully, for the blood of Christ. I'm, I'm, I'm saved. But, you know, there was just nothing big there. And I, and I kept trying to, God, you got to show me. What is it? And then John 15, where it talks about, he who bears fruit, God prunes that you will bear even more fruit. Are you going through a time of brokenness and you're trying to figure out, what have I done wrong? Certainly if there's sin, hey, confess it, move on, repent from it. And God says, let's just move forward. We don't want to grovel in that. But maybe you're trying to make a list and there's just, I, 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 I don't know what it is. Could it be that God is pruning? Pruning hurts, I imagine. I imagine it really hurts that tree if they could have you know, feelings. But that pruning, God wants you to bear more fruit. And by the way, 
Brokenness and innocence, that pruning away, is not just personally, but it can happen communally. There was a point at Camino Chapel in the years I was there that we went through a very difficult time for about a year and a half. Very, very difficult. In fact, it was part of what led me to this breakdown. Um, And it was a very visible scandal that happened in the church. Very visible, not only within the church, but in the community. And uh, I remember the chairman of the board, he said, you know, Camino Chapel is being humbled right now. We were just so discouraged. And he, he said, Camino Chapel is being humbled and our best days are ahead. What follows brokenness? Read the scriptures. Brokenness, best days ahead. Can I give you, I think, the best example of all time? How about a man hanging on a cross three days later, the best days are ahead, resurrection from the dead. See, this is part of God's sovereignty, frailty. Now, just very briefly, let's look at God's sovereignty and our source of strength. Verse 34, at the end of the days, what what days is being referred to. This is the end of the seven years of the brokenness of Nebuchadnezzar. I, Nebuchadnezzar, now he's speaking first person, he did several things. I lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. Notice, Nebuchadnezzar lifted his eyes to heaven. When we're in a time of frailty or at any time, let's lift our eyes to heaven as our source of strength, God alone. Stop trying to push buttons, throw switches, turn dials to try to fix everything. Say, God, I lift my eyes to heaven. Only you can fix this. And if you don't fix it, give me the grace and strength to have joy in the midst of this. Notice also Nebuchadnezzar's reason return. In his case, his sanity returns. Let me apply this. As we lift our eyes to heaven, we say, God, you're our only source of strength. You are the sovereign God. We uh, have guidance that come from God, reason and understanding of the situation and how to go forward in our lives. And third, Nebuchadnezzar worshiped God. That's the result of the knowledge of God's sovereignty. Once we come to that place of recognition, I'm not God, God is God. There's a heart of, of praise. In fact, reading this, would you agree with me that it looks to me like when we're around the throne of God, Nebuchadnezzar's going to be there? I think this is a pretty good indication that we will see him in eternity. So what is it that's happening in our lives that looks hopeless? It looks, you know, like the old 50 song, we look like we're down, doobie-doo, down, down, and we can't get any lower. What is it? Could it be that God has something? Because of his sovereignty, not only does he control events in the present, but he looks into the future and he understands what could happen from our brokenness. Let me tell you a story. My older brother, he was about a decade older than me. He was like my hero. When he was 17, he begged my mom and dad to signed the consent that he could become a Marine. You know, if you're under 18, your parents got to sign approval. And finally, my mom and dad did. They 
signed the documents, he joined the Marines, went to Vietnam. In May of 1967, I was eight years old, two Marines, late in the night, they knocked on our door. That, that's what you never want to have happen to inform my mom and dad that Denny was killed in action. That knock on that door that night sent the trajectory of our, our family. We, we were, I was raised in a Christian home. It, 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 it's, it set a tone over our home, and I think you can probably understand the pain that we were going through. And um, I can remember the next morning, because again, the Marines came at late at night. I can remember walking into our family room, and, and today... I'm telling you like a photograph. You know what I'm talking about when you have trauma? I remember where my mom was sitting. She was crying. I remember my oldest brother was there, and they lived four hours away, and I was confused. Well, why are they here? They had driven during the night once they got word. And I remember my dad was trying to comfort my mom. In fact, years later, my parents sold that house, and, and I went by with my brothers to see what does the house look like now, and the new owners graciously, years later, they weren't new owners then, but they graciously let us go in and get a tour of the house. I walked in the family room, and it, just, it came flooding back. There was so much pain. And here's what was so hard. I remember as a little child, every single night when my dad would pray for the evening meal, he would say, Lord, thank you for the food and bring Denny home safely. And it didn't happen. I thought, wow, God must not answer prayer as a little kid. About a year later, we had a friend who was a chaplain in the Air Force, and he was stationed in Korea, and he called my dad. He said, Mr. Kramer, my dad's nickname was Dub. Hey, Dub. Um, I got this little street child over here. He needs a home. Little eight-year-old boy. Will you adopt him in memory of your brother, your son, Denny? We talked it over as a family. I remember the morning we drove to Sacramento. We lived in Northern California in the foothills. Drove to Sacramento and he got off the plane. We brought him home. In memory of Denny. In time... Little Cho Chin Ho, Robert Cho Kramer, now, he accepted Jesus Christ as his Savior. Now we talk about what is a soul worth, and we'll say it's priceless. As I've grown older, I think I understand now through a glass darkly, dimly, but I think I understand that, that by, by Denny, not God causing that, but allowing this to happen, can you see the domino chain of events that little Cho Chen Ho comes from the streets of Seoul, Korea, comes to our home, hears about Jesus. Now, he's had a rough life. You can imagine what he went through on the streets there all those years. Has had a very difficult life, but nothing can steal away his eternal destiny. I think the loss of my mom and dad's son, the value of one soul, I, I can see it now. I can see God controlling it either directly, in this case indirectly, the death of my brother to save a young man that never would have heard the gospel otherwise. 
So what is it you are going through? And maybe now it doesn't, you just can't see the way forward. But I don't think we need to see the way forward. I think we need to see the God who can take us forward. That's what we need to see. Let's cling to him. For we are not the man. Well, you could say, I'm not the woman, the woman, woman. However you want to sing the song, ladies. God is God. And let's, like Nebuchadnezzar, turn our eyes to heaven and worship him. Father God, I don't know why you even love us. I know it's your sovereign love at that. We're just frail people fallen through faith in Jesus Christ that he came and lived among us, God in the flesh. He died on the cross for our sins. He rose again on the third day through faith alone in Christ that he paid our penalty. We become your dearly loved He who died, your son, Father, how much more will he live for us, Lord? He, he, he's, he's, he's our cheerleader. Jesus intercedes for us, and he's, he's, he's through his Holy Spirit, is guiding us and strengthening us. He's, he's helping us to live in this messed up, rebellious world in which we're tainted by the way we think and, uh, and we're, we're part of the history of the failure of humanity. However, the good that comes through Christ alone, we can offer you praise. And Lord, when we can't see our way through, we don't know where are we going or where's our family going? What am I going to do next? Lord, you can see the next. Lord, we understand that sometimes you don't change our situation, but through faith in you, you do change our perspective on the situation. And we can have joy in the midst of living of what the world might even say, you're at rock bottom, at rock bottom. Even if rock bottom has a trap door, we go through that trap door knowing and trusting that, God, you're in control and you've got something. You're on the move. You're doing something. Maybe we'll never, ever understand in this life. We likely won't in some situations in our life, Lord. But one day, when we see you face to face, it's all going to be clear. It's all going to unfold in this awareness that, oh, now I see. When my life felt like I was a tree that got cut down at the stump, now I see what you were doing. And Father God, your wisdom is higher than mine your ways are higher than my ways, and for this I give you glory for all eternity. Thank you, Father, that you are God, and we're your loved children. In Jesus' name, amen.